Um, it's time for the Freedom of Form Foundation podcast, episode 13, Space for Learning. Our freedom of form and education work together in our spacefaring future. So, with me today, uh, the interstellar Andrik Bird. Hello. The galactic Saratin Sabertooth. Hello. And joining us from the other side of a wormhole to the Beyond Human podcast. Sorry, Beyond Humanity, rather? Beyond Humanity podcast? It's Humanity and Beyond, yeah. Uh, Tyler James. <laughs> Pleasure. Yeah, th- this is the sort of thing where we're used to it here. Our podcast, you know, we, we try to even just have so much as a grand introduction and it all falls apart. <laughs> Also, yeah, this podcast is very much a bit on the, the silly side. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not going to as for um, sort of more corporate-looking interviews, where we actually record video and things. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, with the podcast, we like to just be able to let our head down a bit and just relax um, and discuss things. And uh, I suppose I should introduce myself for those who are listening to this episode first. I'm Atanasa Kitsune, also known as Daniel Davis, to more boring side of the world and uh, let's get started so I want to um, ask you Tyler um, as you're joining us as our guest um, what do you think the um, educational potential is in going um, boldly where no one has gone before really depends on the angle that you're looking at it from because I'm not certain what has been discussed in prior episodes but I mean when we're talking about where we go from here from present day at earth into maybe space exploration maybe into the advancement of society it's really just a matter of perspective i mean every nation has its own agenda every nation has its own uh, means of quote-unquote educating its population (laughs) so you know um i guess figuring out brass tacks is the basic um premise here yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you could say that when we go into space and, and travel to far distant planets and so on, um, we will obviously learn a lot when we're there. Uh, and yes, at the same time, obviously, we've, we've got all these nations here on Earth and they've all got different ways of educating. So maybe they'll all have different views as to what's important to learn out there. Yeah, I think that there might be some commonalities. I mean, obviously, science, technology, um, language studies, especially if we're dealing in multiple different languages. But obviously, every nation is going to have its own political agenda. And even when we're trying to go on, say, the level of the United Nations, there's still a difficult time separating the you know, individual autonomous nation agenda from the international agenda because they're not always aligned. Sort of makes you want to see, um, you know, a federation um, that that brings together all the nations into one common cause, a little more powerfully perhaps than the UN. Right. 
impact. And I mean, I know that we use Star Trek all the time as a good backdrop for that, but even that has its issues. Um, Because not everybody is good natured, you know, it's, and I know that we've talked about this before. My, my opinion of it is that human nature itself has its quirks. Everybody has their own angle on what self-interest is and we wish it could be different. It's just going to be hard to get there. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, so Andre, um, as our resident, um, student, um, do you think that school at the moment is teaching you much that you're going to need if you ever go into space? I mean, I'm sure you already know the answer to that. The answer to that is pretty much no. I have to read like 13 books or something this year. It's graduation year for me. So, and what am I really going to learn from that? I guess skimming summaries and guessing in between. (laughs) But otherwise, I mean, I'll remember the information for like fine for a year. If I, if I'm going to read all of that now, I'm going to tell all everything the teachers want to hear. And then I'm just going to forget about it again. That's how it is with almost everything at school. So for you, um, the learning system in your country is very much learning by road for the purposes of exams? Yeah, there are some things which are slightly different. Like, it's it's definitely not the worst, but it can can and should be improved by a lot. It seems that your signal's breaking up a bit there. I mean, you, you were saying that your um, education system is giving you um, learning by rote for, for exams. Um, what do you think, from, from your perspective, would, would feel like it works better? Um, you know, what, what could they do better that, that, would, that would make it last longer, that, that would make your uh, memory of, of the information stronger into the future? I guess, uh, for one, associated with something that I am more familiar with or that I'm more interested in. And for two, maybe teach some actual, like, life-applicable skills. Or make it clearer, perhaps, how applicable to life the skills are that they're trying to teach. Yeah. I mean, I remember we even had, like, a basic economy class for one year. And I asked if he could maybe show us how we pay, how we are supposed to pay our taxes. You know, the stereotypical schools don't teach you how to pay your taxes thing. And he said, like, sure. But then he ended up not going through with it for the entire year that we had it. And it was also that the, the whole economics and legal things, those weren't really things that I was interested in. Yeah. So I just ended up with a low grade which I just compensated by having higher grades in other subjects. Mm. So basically, unless you had accountants for parents, you were um, not in a good position there. I, I guess the information also wasn't really taught in a very interesting way, so to speak. And yeah, it was just like... Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but uh, I definitely think that being able to compensate one subject with a different one is a good thing. If you're bad at one thing, then you're probably good at other things. Yeah. And having it balanced out is good. Okay. So. Um, obviously, we, we don't live in the 1960s now. Um, you know, back in the, that time, every astronaut had to basically understand astrophysics. They had to understand every last element of the mathematics of orbital mechanics and things like that to really follow um, what they were doing with their craft, because it was largely controlled by them on board. There wasn't much that could be done remotely. That's not really true. I mean, if I recall correctly, Apollo was almost entirely autopiloted and just with programs and trajectories calculated by other people, yes, but not by the astronauts themselves. Okay, well, in that case, I'm wrong. <laughs> um, that's, that's good to know. So the computers on board the Apollo were not very powerful by today's standards, but they were enough to direct it successfully. But nonetheless, they, they had, obviously, these astronauts who were trained up because they were worried that the computer might fail or something and you might need to do yeah. I mean, to that, I can maybe say something else. Um, there is actually a very engaging way to learn these physics and orbital mechanics, specifically as it relates to controlling spaceships. Kerbal Space Program, which has been described by people as the gateway drug to physics, which, as someone who has spent thousands of hours in that game, I can say that that is absolutely true. And I actually have a program running on my computer, and it has been running for around 10 hours at this point, looking for great circles on one planet so that I can control a ship more efficiently. Nice. So, Kerbal Space Program was already mentioned in our previous episode, but... Um... Yes, yes. <laughs> it's good to be able to mention it in, in an educational context here. Um, I think that there's a lot of potential um, in the world for, and what it's already doing for us to learn from the best examples and, um, and build a kind of spacefaring future society that is more capable of efficiently um, learning and, and teaching. Um, so... I've, I've done a little bit of research and, you know, I've, I've sort of drawn on a few past experiences for a little bullet point list here of things. Um, have any of you heard, for example, of um, Coda Dojo? I can't say I have, no. Ah, well. Literally never. Yeah, me, I'm not as familiar with it as I probably should be. But you have heard of it before? On and off again. Um, I just haven't had the time to explore it. Mm-hmm. So, so to describe it to our listeners, um, Coda Dojo is an organization um, that was founded in Ireland um, about 10 years ago uh, by a group of um, entrepreneurs who, who realized that education as it currently stands um, tends to turn kids off um, and you know make them not so interested in the subjects as it should. And one of the ways to make it more relatable is to let kids teach each other, especially when it comes to subjects like coding and you know computer um, programming. So, Coda Dojo was founded as a kind of um, a, an organisation where the, the kids can come along as a kind of weekend club or an evening club, um, and the parents would just supervise and there would be materials provided that make it easy for the kids to get started and then 
the ones who are already pretty good at coding, the geeks, as it were, the ones who are children of uh, fairly geeky or nerdy families, would be able to, um, you know, sort of naturally assume a, a position where they're helping the other kids out more. And it worked really well. And they uh, set up a system of rewards with, like, USB um, drives that are colour-coded in a similar manner to, uh, you know, karate belts. Um, and... You know, obviously it fits with the theme of a dojo. And it's something that went down so well and it, it increased coding uh, proficiency among kids so quickly that it spread to a lot of other cities around the world. So now there's there's all these groups now teaching each other, essentially, and the kids within them teaching each other um, how to code better. And they're using things like Raspberry Pi computers and just basic second-hand laptops um, to learn things like Python and Scratch and making cool things. So I was thinking, why can't we sort of think about the importance of um, making you know, life multiplanetary like Elon Musk has suggested we should, um, and both sort of uh, embed that kind of learning atmosphere into our official education systems in um, various places around the world, uh, and also make it the default in the establishment of our new civilizations out in space. So if I may just offer a comment there, um, at least from my angle as somebody who comes from academia, the issue that we are always seeing today is that, you know, the way that people were raised 20, 30 years ago, who are now in positions of educating and teaching, those are, you know, the education ways of more bygone eras, as it were, um, because obviously we don't have people who um, were very familiar with internet education, if at all, because obviously these people were raised in post-World War II times, Cold War era times, uh, before the internet things became big, as it were. So there's a little bit of a difficulty there because just the baseline standards of where we expect our educators to be can't always match where we are as a society. Again, it's just because things end up being generational in this way and academicians stay in their position basically for, you know, 40, 50, 60 years at this point now, it's very difficult to modernize the education system in a way that's better suited for today's age. So tenure breeds conservatism. In a sense. Right. Um, so one thing that I wanted to say is that from my perspective as a student and also from other things that I've read, I don't think that such a system would ever catch on in a substantial way in um, mainstream society, as it were, without some radical restructuring of the way the education system is perceived. Because most parents want grades. They want to know, they want to just have a number that says, okay, this student is doing well, this student is not doing well. And with a system where children teach each other and where there isn't really a structured system for learning, this uh, does not work. A similar thing is happening with language learning at schools, where the way languages are taught at school is 
extremely inefficient compared to a more natural way of acquiring language. But that way is just extremely disorganized by design. And so you can't really have tests or grades in it. And that's why it isn't implemented in, on a wider scale. So perhaps we need to have society kind of loosen up um, and not worry so much about tests and grades. I mean, they do have their place. It's just your interpretation of the information is where things get mixed up. I mean, data is, at the end of the day, uh, information plus meaning, as a colleague of mine is very fond of saying. Hmm. And yet the kids that code a dojo manage to, uh, you know, gain or uh, attain these these levels of capability over time, um, uh, whenever it suits them. Um, you know, they, it's like achieving a belt in karate. You know, it's, it's at their own pace. So uh, maybe an education system that's based more on that would be more suitable to the differences between people. I mean, there is that, but you also have to be concerned about what else is interceding on their time, because as we're probably all aware, <laughs> it's very easy for us to become, um, you know, uh, acquire attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity disorders, because there's just so much going on in our daily lives. And it's even more prevalent in your early years. I mean, I remember growing up and having handheld consoles and gaming systems and I mean, I look back on it now and I think, wow, how much time did I actually waste? And then I look at my current habits and see, oh, I'm still doing those same things. <laughs> I'm not sure how it is for everybody else, but... <laughs> well, I mean, for, for some of us here, um, it makes a living, right, Seraphin? You got it. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you, you got to make lemonade out of those lemons. Um, and... I mean, sometimes, you know, you just got to work with what you've got, which is basically what hackerspaces do. You know, you get a group of people together, they've got different skills, um, they don't necessarily have oodles of time to throw into it individually, but when you've got the collaborative power of maybe a couple of hundred people in a city, um, they all share the same space where they're all working on their projects, and they can just let their skills rub off on each other, essentially, from working side by side on these things and helping each other out and so hackerspace is a kind of looser again than a code of dojo is in the sense that there's no real levels to attain there's just you know you learn as and when from each other while you're doing something that's useful to you um and then there's diy biospaces that as the name might imply um they are for learning biological um you know, reactions and uh, scientific experiments and things, um, biotechnology and biochemistry. Um, but they are essentially a hackerspace for that. Um, so, again, you know, people just teaching each other the skills needed over time. Um, it's a relaxed atmosphere, and sometimes the projects really go places and amazing things happen. Um, so, this is kind of partly the... Um, atmosphere that, that led to the creation of the Freedom of Form Foundation in the first place, um, because the concept of freedom of form itself, um, you know, is, is rooted in people's ability to become whatever they want to be, um, and to, you know, teach um, one another how to do that, in a sense, um, or to, to have the tools to do so. Um, and I feel that that's, um, Something that, that we shouldn't forget is we 
we came at this from a very community kind of perspective. Um, you know, it's not like some big corporation like Google or um, Amazon said, okay, we're going to create this new concept, freedom of form. You know, it wasn't their idea. Um, it's something that's come from the ground up. And I think that that's a very important thing to carry into space with us as well. Um, not just freedom of form, but the fact that it came from a grassroots origin, and that's where we can get more cool ideas that really benefit everyone. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there, because, I mean, at the end of the day, community is everything. Without it, we won't have society. It's just difficult at times to discern what is in the community's interest and what is in corporate interest, especially when we start dealing with macroeconomics and um, international trade and that sort of thing. Indeed. Um, and getting a community to agree on things can be tricky. Oh, Without doubt. I mean, we see that right now in the U.S. I mean, I'm not even going to touch on the whole COVID issue, but just getting us to try to understand that the conservative parties and the Democratic parties aren't all that different. And yet we're up in arms against, you know, working across the aisle. That's the whole point of democracy. You're supposed to work across the aisle. You can't just say, no, we refuse and call it a day. You get stagnation. Yeah, um, people have got to work together. Um, and, you know, perhaps people should be less afraid of voting and less afraid of referenda. Um, what do you think, Andre? Well, um, I think that uh, certain things like the ratchet effect certainly play a large role, but I mean, if one party refuses to cooperate, then it's just going, and the ratchet effect kind of uh, works in this way that things are just going to, if you are always going to meet them in the middle, then the middle is going to keep shifting. And that is how we get to the United States that we see today. Yeah, as compared to the rest of the world. Uh, yes, yes. Policies, yeah. yeah. Um, although that said, it's still shifting around even now, not always in um, the same direction. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean. Overall, there's, there's been this, this movement over time. Uh, but anyway, we're not meant to be a political podcast. Um, right, so sorry. What we say there. Um, and... You know, different people who are listening will have different opinions on which way things have moved and what's happened there. Um, and that's fine, you know. Um, at the end of the day, we're trying to look at how do um, things like freedom of form and space travel really properly get um, developed in the long term, because that's that's what education is for. It's for the long term, isn't it? You know, because obviously people get old and die, and new children are born who need to grow up and learn things to understand what's going on in the world. And that that's another point I wanted to bring up about education. It's just what do we prioritize in education? What do we find is important? What do we want to preserve? Um, I mean, we have a lot of legend, we have a lot of lore, and I would even argue science fiction gives us a futuristic outlook onto where society might be going and, you know, cautioning us on uh, the directions that we should be proceeding. But at the end of the day, again, it's all a matter of 
what do we intend to pass on to the next generation and what will they actually hold on to and preserve as being uh, vital? Because, you know, we, we could... I have an opinion on that. I think, especially in today's um, society and the state of the world today, one extremely important thing we need to teach, which is not being taught right now enough, is critical thinking skills. There are too many conspiracy theories and such online, and we need to teach people how to avoid them. Well, yeah, um, I mean... Critical thinking is is a bit of a uh, an interesting thing to apply because um, of course you know some people view conspiracy theories themselves as applied critical thinking uh, without necessarily understanding what critical thinking is. So there's there's a lot of room for improvement there I think in society as a whole um, in understanding how to uh, filter these things, um, and that's that's sort of going to matter wherever you are because. Even if we've got ourselves over to Mars or something and started a new colony, um, you know, people in isolation from, you know, the, the rest of um, society from Earth um, may come to conclusions about what's going on on Earth that are not quite right, and it will take longer, obviously, for them to learn the difference because of the communications gap. There would be the potential for, you know, a very sort of different set of viewpoints to develop somewhere like that. Um, and the same could go for if we had um, like a semi-isolated society of uh, transformees of, of people who have changed their body um, and who are being if not shunned by society perhaps they're just being cautious not to um, raise too much of a uh, of a backlash against them by, by staying out of, of the involvement with society the, the problem then you can get is a divergence of understanding, a divergence of education and and of cultural connection. Certainly. Yeah. Obviously, you know, people might be applying technologies to themselves to change their bodies, um, and they might be doing that for a variety of reasons. They might be going to live on other planets, and that might be why, you know, they want to adapt to those other worlds. Or they might be doing it for purely cosmetic reasons, or they might be doing it for some kind of deeper spiritual meaning uh, to connect to their true form, as it were. Uh, but in every case, you know, there's there's going to be this question of is is doing that putting you in a position where getting education um, further for yourself or for your children is going to be harder? Uh, you know, because you're putting yourself in a sort of social position where it's less easy to gain access to services. And it's a very difficult line to tread because. At the end of the day, the person who controls the information is the person who is able to change the direction of society. And that holds true whether you're a government organization, a corporation, or a community. All right. Um, I think we are reaching somewhere towards a middle point of the podcast. So I'm just going to fit in a quick mention that we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash freedom of form um hopefully i'll be putting a link in the description if i remember to um and that is all used towards our uh, research um towards our goals um and towards um funding uh, external researchers as well who are um, in collaboration and in alignment with our uh, goals and our efforts the freedom of form foundation's website is at freedom of form.com uh, sorry dot org freedomform.org 
um, and you can find there all the information about what we're up to. We also have a merch store, um, and the link is available on our website at the top. One thing that I, I guess I wanted to um, talk about in uh, specifically for the question that you mentioned, if uh, freedom of form could make learning uh, more difficult, I think this would not be the case except for uh, those people that want to modify their their brains for the purposes of freedom of form. I mean, in, in the sense of it being literally more difficult to learn, um, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, by by the time that freedom of form is a thing, which hopefully will be soon, uh, I'm thinking that things like online learning will already have become completely a society. Um, the online learning will have become completely part of society. Did you say? Yes. Um, and when when people have um, you know full freedom of form, I mean, obviously. There's, there's a chance that in so doing they'll put themselves in a position where they're more comfortable in themselves and they're more able to focus. Yeah, that um, sounds like it would apply to me. <laughs> so you could say that it would have positive effects on education um, if yes. it isn't going to be you know, getting in the way of it. I mean, even if, I mean, uh, like, you know, grand, grand society was... Yeah, yeah. Like a society was not exactly like very kind to me in the way I learned with, uh, at times, but I was able to teach myself amazing things. So, <laughs> well, if I could interject uh, sure. just really quickly, how we learn is necessarily going to change, especially as we start to become more familiar with nootropics, how they influence brain chemistry, um, as we start getting into neuroprostheses and using artificial intelligence to augment our um, cognitive capabilities. You know, these are things that are going to radically change how we perceive the world, how we perceive education, how we perceive knowledge. And obviously, you know, a lot of people, they're quote unquote knowledge source is from social media, it's from internet searches, it's from freely accessible information of questionable validity. And, you know, it's it'll be what it'll be. But not everything that presents itself in academia or in journalism is going to be the absolute truth. We create that truth for ourselves. And that's that's an important thing to emphasize. Well yeah, at least to some degree we do, yeah. Um, and Tyler, you made an excellent point there that um, part of freedom of form, um, in, in some interpretations of it at least, may involve people modifying um, their brains, their cognitive abilities, um, and thus literally modifying how they learn. And you can imagine uh, if somebody decides that they want to become more um, intelligent um, as part of their upgrades that they give themselves before they head off to some other planet, um, then this is very applicable to space travel too, because you could um, do something um, to your mind so that you're able to condense years and years of learning into a few months of space travel or something while you're bored on the spaceship. Um, and then when you arrive, you know, you've, you've essentially used freedom of form to improve your education uh, in the time it takes you to get from Earth to Mars or whatever. Um, and then when you're there, you are this sort of 
much more capable um, member of the new society that's being started there, where, of course, every individual probably has to wear many hats initially. Right. And uh, pointing again to that earlier statement, that data is information plus meaning. Hmm. You know, that's the other aspect that we have to approach it from. It's just what is the meaning behind that information that we're putting into ourselves? And, you know, what is the intent behind attaining that meeting and disseminating that information? So one thing that I wanted to say is that perhaps uh, people specifically here, meaning uh, people who identify as a, as a different species, they might want to add some ability to think more similarly to their species, to their brain, perhaps allowing them to view things in a different way that a normal human might never have considered before. As if that would also improve their education. Yes. Um, and furthermore, it would put them in a position to be very um, able to contribute in novel ways to uh, you know, your new upstart societies on other planets or even to you know, new cities or just any existing cities or groups here on Earth, um, you, you can view things in new ways. You can take new approaches. And, and so this could lead to uh, a much more uh, fascinating kind of development and a faster development of um, new ideas and of innovations. It could also serve to... Um perhaps make cities and, in general, human society friendlier to animals, which has not historically been the case. Reason for it, yeah. Well, and along that topic as well, um, even if we are talking about freedom of form, the extent of our health span and or lifespan, however you want to approach that, because there's this idea emerging in longevity medicine where um, there's this thing of a health span where, you know, it's the number of years that we can live in a relatively healthy, um, very capable, able-bodied way. Uh, as we start to become centenarians as a, you know, general of the human population, of the general human lifespan, um, that is obviously going to impact um, how we perceive our forms, how we evolve our forms, how we adapt our forms, and just how we approach the idea of what is the basic structure of the human body. You know, it doesn't have to be um, what we know and uh, have become adapted to today. It's going to maybe transcend us so that we're more akin to the elves that pop up in fantasy all the time as a good example. Yeah, I mean, no, that's part of elven safety, right? Right. <laughs> um, sorry, that joke is old and probably considered a dad joke by quite a few people by now. <laughs> well, that's how things become dad jokes. It's just... It's, uh, I, I thought dad jokes are just cheap puns. It depends on your angle there. <laughs> but no, in all, in all seriousness, I mean, when we get down to the brass tacks of it, there's going to be a lot of innovations that are appearing on the horizon that we're already researching that are going to be adjusting how we perceive education, how we perceive knowledge, um, and that apply to allowing us to freely manipulate our form. And I know, again, aging might not be considered part of that, 
but that is going to be an integral aspect of it all. Because at the end of the day, if we can manipulate how long we can live healthy lives, you know, that's obviously going to impact um, going our natural lifespan. It's not just manipulating our physical forms, it is manipulating our ages that's going to be part of that freedom of form, as it were. Oh, nice. yes. Sorry. Um, yeah, it took me a moment to, to get what you meant there, but yes. Um, this is one of the reasons we've been talking to Liz Parrish. Um, there's an interview with her on our YouTube channel. Um, I'm not sure if you know who Liz Parrish is already, Tyler? No, but I haven't had a chance to do a lot of research into her. I've I've got my fingers in a lot of different pies. Yeah. You know, my remit is looking into emerging technologies, how they impact society, and Right now, my emphasis has been in nanotechnology, uh, the definition of virtual spaces, and, you know, uh, obviously, this whole aspect of longevity, freedom of form. So it's, there's a lot to cover and not enough hours in the day. Well, um, I'm sure you'll enjoy the uh, interview with this parish then, as uh, that will tell you everything you need to know about who she is. Um, she's with a company called BioViva and working on longevity, or longevity, as, as you may say. Yeah, I had a similar conversation with uh, Evelyn Biscoff. She is a uh, longevity uh, researcher as well, right now based in China. Mm-hmm. So, Awesome. Um, and perhaps um, we are going to need to uh, think also about how we interact with technology, because... Um, Education is not exactly preparing us very well for the singularity. Um, you know, if, if technology is getting smarter and smarter all the time, eventually it'll be smarter than us, um, to a greater and greater degree, um, and exponentially so. Um, and this is one of the reasons why um, Elon Musk started Neuralink, as you know. Um, right. And <laughs> I'm just looking at the recent science news here. Um, one of the articles that... Uh, that we recently discussed in the Freedom of Form Foundation's Discord, it was that um, a brain implant entrepreneur, who was previously a co-founder of Neuralink, but split off and started his own company, uh, says that his inbox is filled with furries. (laughs) I mean, I have said this before, but uh, I will say it again. I'm probably going to become like the biggest boomer when it comes to brain chips and implants i'm just going to stay away from that for as long as i possibly can (laughs) i mean you don't have to um necessarily have a brain implant in order to um, avoid being um irrelevant to the new computer overlords um it's just yeah you know the the other methods haven't yet been developed quite as far i think and what I'm talking about is um, things like gene editing ourselves in order for biology to update itself faster than current lifespans allow. Um, and, you know, to, to enable um, ourselves to uh, essentially upgrade on, on the fly, you know. Um, like a computer is selling updates, but um, on a biological level, you know, for our brains. Right. And uh, my, my take on it is just 
you know, with the adaptation of technology, with the development of it, obviously some of it is still very much in the early days. Um, it's progressing a lot faster than we're used to it. Progressing, obviously, if we're talking about older generations, um, obviously the younger generations, we see this as an everyday occurrence. It's part of daily life now. It's just something that we grow accustomed to because it's always present in our daily lives. But at the end the day, um, the vested interests that are at hand and that exist are going to dig in their heels because they are the vested interests. You know, they want to be able to ensure that they have a say in how things progress so that they're not just gone tomorrow. Indeed. Um, and if you, if you want a, a quote to throw at that, I mean, <laughs> as, um, uh, as they said, you know, video killed the radio star. Uh, well, Men Without Hats added to that. They said, um, internet killed the video star, but telepathy killed the internet star. And, you know, it's it's easy to sort of view our childhood as being, you know, the normal technological level and everything before that was ye olden times and everything after that is, wow, amazing future. But it's all subjective, isn't it, to when you're born, when you're brought up. <laughs> and so kids being born today, you know, by the time they um, get out of school, people will live on Mars, people will be, you know, multiplanetary, and that will be the norm. Um, there will hopefully, if, if um, we are successful with our endeavours here, uh, also be lots of people with different um, uh, species identities able to actually live that out in the, in the flesh, you know, able to transform themselves. And that will just be considered a normal part of society if we are, uh, you know, able to persuade society to, to be that progressive, at least. Right. And it's not to say that that's the, the liberal aspect of life. I mean, at the end of the day, we all have conservatives uh, conser baked into our psyches. It's just, you know, we get used to a certain thing and it's hard to change our mind. Someone who is as fluid as us, you know, it's kind of hard to change us sometimes. There is this this um, term: if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Um, which you know, it all depends on how you define broke. Uh, yeah, and obviously that is up for uh, uh, interpretation from person to person. Exactly, because you know. To one person, something might be worn out and done in and about to fail any second. To another, it's like, oh, that, that'll um, easily last another 10 years. Um, and, I mean, yeah, you can you can make things, you know, eke them out and, and make the most of them for as long as possible, or you can upgrade them sooner in order to gain the full benefits of staying on top of the, the newest and latest trends. And, you know, different minds have different points of view on that. Yeah, there is no. Yeah, I, 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 I can definitely like. Yeah. I mean, approve. Like, ah, oh, if you take care of uh, your kids enough, you would have them until you're fifty. But meanwhile, like, I don't want them. <laughs> Sorry, you don't want what? Uh, my teeth, you know. Your teeth. Oh. Um, yeah. Well. Obviously, that's, that's to your particular uh, species identity. Um, yes, of course. And so if everyone has their own perspective on what they'd like to be um, and how they would implement that. 
Um, and Seraphine, do you feel that um, that you, um, as uh, as a gaming streamer now, um, do you feel that you were like prepared for that? And um, do you think that it prepare, prepares you for anything that that is coming um, in in the near future with uh, you know the capabilities of of technology? I don't know if it would prepare me more. I think it prepares like differently. I mean, excuse me, Twitch streaming, I mean, is just another form of communication, except it's more of a one to many where it's me just broadcasting to everyone out there. But I do get to see, you know, like right now, I'm, I've been curating the, the Twitch chat for, for the podcast. So, you know, get to talk to people and stuff like that. But technology has come such a long way that I knew when I was like a decade ago, like you wouldn't do, you wouldn't even think of doing something like this. It was unheard of. It was unprecedented, even with YouTube starting to get kind of big and internet starting to become more of a thing, being able to broadcast anything you wanted. I mean, back then you needed a studio and big cameras and all types of stuff. Now you just need a laptop and a, and a phone and you're good to go. So uh, back to the, Point hand though, I think it would also depend on the kind of singularity that we hit with technology. I feel like we're kind of going like we're racing four different kinds of things. There's like the robot singularity, there's the digital singularity, kind of a, if you watch like uploader or, or it's, you download your brain into the internet, basically stuff like that. Uh, genetic singularity. I mean, it really, I suppose it depends on personal preference at that point, but. Um, I think getting used to this technology helps enable to adapt to the next round of technology because, as was mentioned earlier, technology is increasing at quite an exponential rate. We build computers that can solve problems faster, that allow us to build faster computers, that allow us to solve problems faster, so on and so forth in perpetuity. So, um, And going back one more step into the whole science fiction realm, um, I was, I, I do have a degree in science. I'm a biologist, but you know, I do mostly writing and mostly like science fiction writing. And I like science fiction writing with science because it portrays a possible future, not necessarily the one we're heading towards. But if you read a lot of science fiction, you can see that sometimes, you know, what these authors are thinking of don't get too far off the mark. I mean, even in even in like total, not in. Earth reality shows like Star Trek or well that's I mean Star Wars not Star Trek in Star Wars where it's you know another it's there's no Earth it's all different planets and stuff I mean you can see a lot of similarities and things like that so I mean we're probably not going to have Death Stars floating around you know anytime in the near future or at all but you know the idea of orbital based technology or or of massive planet-like structures that we can build and live on, maybe. Yeah, so uh, one thing to say about this, uh, it, it's admittedly very much of a nitpick, but uh, we are not going to increase computer power perpetually. The land hour limit is the absolute highest that we could go. Unless we somehow manage to figure out reversible computing, but that is not exactly possible. And showing that it, assume, the assumption that it is impossible is actually where Randauer's principle derives from. Right. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I get what you're saying there. And, and 
you know, I'm, I'm saying basically like technology. I just use computer processing as an example. And another thing about being a science fiction writer is I get to live on that fun little fringe where I kind of can make up science to go for some things to fit my will. Um, and I know it can't always apply, but that's kind of the fun of it sometimes. And who knows? I mean, there, there could be a discovery of monumental proportions where, where we don't even have phantomed thinking about yet. That's a fever dream of some, you know, mathematician or something that comes into being and then changes the way we have to think about everything. I mean, a hundred years ago, no one would think about going to the moon. That that's an impossible. That was a fevered dream of, you know, H.G. Wells and, and authors like that. So who knows what happens in the next ten years? Yeah, exactly. And now you find some people want to stay on Earth and stick with the old technologies and do their thing. Some people want to go to other planets. Some people want to change their bodies, and. It all kind of comes together into what freedoms people have, you know, freedoms of choice in general. Um, and yes, freedom of form is a part um, of that. So just to kind of um, wrap that portion of the conversation up, uh, to say that the freedom of form is going to have these unexpected effects because when people can change themselves um, in order to either an advantage in education or an advantage in a particular environment or simply to match the uh, you know the inner identity that they already have um, and that they want to express on the outside and you know have a kind of real life avatar editor for that i think that the the effects of that are going to be profound and they're going to to really change how how people think about themselves in in real life uh, and i think that the gaming, um, like you've been um, obviously so diligently doing, has, has actually prepared us a bit for that because we get used to the idea of embodying different characters and of you know uh, equipping them with um, not necessarily always the best um, options that the game has, but just the options we want. Right. Actually, that that's a good point about you know character customization and. and being a huge D&D and you know one of the things we like to joke about at least in my group is why be a human when you can be literally anything else Uh, (laughs) some people like it some people like being human not knocking but sorry you want to be human in video games but um, yeah I think you're right that we kind of get into that mutability mindset of well if we don't like what we look like we can just change it and actually I kind of been writing a little like book where it's the consequences of being able to change into whatever you want and it's an interesting thought experiment of what society has to do to kind of substantiate that kind of thing because you know if you could be a normal like looking nondescript human guy one second and then a wolf girl in the next weekend because that's what you want to do i mean how's that going to help with crime you know for a big one you know or you know you can change into something else on the fly then you know meeting people interpersonal relationships you'd be like who are you again you know you meet so a big orc guy, and then you meet someone else the next week, and they're a you know elf guy instead. It's like, oh, gee, you know. Um, uh, yeah. So there are some things I wanted to say about that. I think that changing that frequently 
probably isn't going to be done by very many people unless they're either questioning their form, in which case they will on something eventually, or there may be form fluid or something. But another thing is that the whole video game thing, it very much fits in, because for the entirety of this podcast, I have been playing video games. Which is why I was actually muting myself. And you've been doing that because attention has been difficult to maintain um, on one thing on its own. Uh, not really. It's just just because my cousin said, like, hey, let's play something, and I, I, I already accepted, and then all of the podcast planning started. So I just thought to myself, hey, why not? <laughs> well done for multitasking. You're doing better than I can. Thank you. So, we've um, had some uh, crazy um, ups and downs um, you know, over the last uh, few months. Uh, and the, the foundation itself, the, uh, the Freedom of Four Foundation, has, has um, I think, come out on top um, overall from that. I'm just having a look quickly at kind of the, the to do lists that I've been through. I'm just trying to see if there's anything that stands out to mention. Because I think our listeners do like to know um, what's happening. And we do have a, a newsletter that we've um, been trying to put out at a sensible time of month and it keeps kind of ending up slightly late. <laughs> That's because we've got so much to do. Okay, so there was, of course, Liz Parrish's interview. Um, it was the 13th episode of the podcast is this one, but the 12th episode was um, the previous one. That was about space as well. So if you want um, a kind of more in-depth look into space travel itself and how that connects to freedom of form, our previous episode is what you need. And uh, a link should be provided for that too. Um We've been expanding our uh, official registrations of the charity as well into the UK. Um, and we've been looking at uh, whether we want to uh, expand it further in the US as well in order to um, enable us to fundraise in more places in person. The good news is, though, that we can already fundraise in per- uh, over the internet um, without needing to do much um, paperwork, um, at least in most places. Then there's the much more interesting news that we're starting a new project. Um, there is now a Project Enhanced Tail, and that's going to be a collaboration between the Freedom of Form Foundation and the Tail Company. Um, so this is another great use of your donations here. Um, we're actually pressing ahead with neuroprosthetic technologies and applying them to um, developing a real tail that you can actually control with your mind. Question. Wow. That was quite a loud question. I, I, every time I hear someone like the joke that oh, someone died because of because of what was just said. <laughs> and my question was: uh, Wouldn't just neuroplasticity be enough, like just connected up to the nerves instead of using like chips or something? Well, there have to be chips in the device that you're connecting to the nerves in order to translate the neural signals into something that's uh, yeah. that device. Of, of course, yes. Yes, I forgot it. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, you know, when, when it's a prosthetic, yes, it's going to need chips. Um, yeah. Now, implanting chips into the body um, is a method, but it doesn't have to be the method. Um, and that's something that, right. you know, the Enhanced Tail Project will be researching what's actually necessary to put into the body um, and what can you just keep separate on, on the device itself. Okay. Yeah, there's there's plenty of room for discussion uh, on that in our Discord server. Um, and for our listeners, if you want to join the Freedom of Form Foundation's Discord server, 
then please get in touch with us on Twitter at Freedom of Thought, and we'll be able to direct you from there. Or you can um, drop us a message using... Um, I was, was going to say using the comments on YouTube, but then I remembered YouTube comments tend to get ignored because, um, well, why do you think? <laughs> Certain people ruin them for us. Um, but yes, on, on Twitter is probably the easiest way to get in touch. So do you guys want to uh, bring up any other thoughts on, um, on these subjects that we've discussed so far? No, not really. I'm just kind of running a blank. <laughs> I mean, obviously, what we've been talking about uh, regarding uh, video games, being able to change out our avatars at will. To be clear, you know, it's going to be very difficult for us to switch from one form to the next unless we're in a virtual environment. Because obviously, we can undergo all these surgeries, we can try to change our bodies up as much as we want, but it's not going to be an instantaneous process. So, at least for the physical side of things, you know, we we have fewer concerns. It's just when we start getting into the virtual environments, and we start having more immersive uh, digital experiences, you know, that's, that's where we have to start being a bit more cautious. You know, this makes me wonder... Um... Obviously, I mentioned earlier about freedom of form, including potentially the ability to uh, do learning. Um, it makes me wonder if the speed of that improvement could eventually be increased to the point where it's like the Matrix, where uh, Neo learns Kung Fu. I do believe that that might be a very real possibility. Um Obviously, you see in Japanese media all the time where people go into these very immersive, in-depth virtual realities, um, sort of online being the prominent one that I'm thinking of right now, and the actions that you carry through in that environment carry into your physical environment. And, you know, that is a consequence of it, because even though you're not moving your physical form, if you're in a state of stasis and you're in an immersive virtual reality, that reality that you're experiencing, you know, is for all intents and purposes, your reality. And, you know, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, it becomes part of your... Um, timeline and it's going to be more and more difficult to distinguish between the two i mean if we talk about augmenting realities that's a whole different can of worms that we can get into but yeah it's we have to realize that our reality is based on our subjective timelines and if we cannot easily distinguish between them it becomes very very easy for things to get blurred and muddled and then there's the question of um, if everybody is doing this anyway and, you know, if everybody um, has this ability to dip in and out of virtual reality at will. I mean, obviously, we're already kind of doing that with gaming. How much does it then matter what the boundary is? If, if, I think to me, or at least to me and to a lot of people too, it will probably still matter a lot because I can, while I can kind of dip out of a real world and into some game. Well, first of all, I have things that I... Yeah, so even after that, I'm still reminded of the body that I'm in. And yeah, that just isn't really a nice feeling. <laughs> yeah, I get you that um, the virtual reality may not be sufficient. Um, what I think would be interesting, though, is to use it as a way to 
uh, augment our capabilities um, without, you know, without at all kind of, without discarding our uh, physicality um, per se, but but just in, um, you know something fluidly switch between virtual and, and real life without uh, without it being a sort of conscious thing that matters. It's instead just kind of subconsciously just one moment you're virtual and next you're in real life, depending on what you do. Um, I think one thing which could be, it, it could definitely be beneficial because for instance, uh, research, I think, I think there was actually research on this, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. but it has uh, like shown that practicing things in lucid dreams mm-hmm. helps you with these things in reality. Potentially, again, going back to the scene where uh, Neo learns Kung Fu. Yes. Something like that could be done with technology and maybe like three or four or five years. Well, and I don't know Seraphin's perspective on this, but um, I know some people, you know, they would obviously want to be only in the virtual worlds and be able to freely go from one world to the next. I mean, again, that's another element that crops up in science fiction like Sword Art Online, where you can go from one world to the next, you can have your account be uh, interoperable, transferable, yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, there are going to be uh, instances where you want to delineate because your uh, virtual persona in certain circumstances, not in all, can be so radically different from your physical persona that you separate because obviously you fear not only the discrimination, but, you know, the reality that you are a distinct individual in this virtual space and you are a distinct individual in this physical space and you don't want to meld the two because one is preferable and being an other kind and stuff like that, if I had a chance to like go non-human, I, I necessity to interact in the physical world, even if it's just to upkeep or, or do stuff like that. Um, at least until we hit like a digital thing. But I think with, and especially with what you're saying there, there can be maybe a problem with um, like identity dysmorphia where, you know, you're in the, virtual world i always had a fun there, there's a movie i think it was on netflix where you could put little eye drops in your eyes and experience like a vacation like three weeks in the mountains in like two minutes and i always thought that was a neat idea but then you're also you know your brain is processing something different than what is actually happening you know what are the consequences of that you know and if we're talking about identity wise you spend you know as much time as you can as a dragon or even just even just slightly non-human like a, a tabaxi or, or cat folk which is mostly human just you know ears and tail and fur and then you have to ship back to human like you know what are you going to experience like phantom sensations like with the ears and such is there going to be a difference in occlusion of like sight or sound you know because i'm sure the game will probably give you better sight and sound based on your whatever if it's a video game or something like that so really yeah that's one of the other concepts i explore with that whole shape changing whatever you want it's like you know at what point do you kind of lose your original identity and is that a bad thing you know, for me, 35 years, I've been this human person that I see every day in the mirror. You know, if I if I suddenly can change into whatever I want and I push into something different, now it's like, you know, I still remember being that, that guy, 
but now I'm this person and is it good? Is it better? Is it worse? You know, there, there's definitely a lot of psychological ram that can be, it's definitely going to be a very interesting way to see how the brain adapts to having multiple forms. Like in the furry pen, some people have one OC, some hundreds of those, you know, of OCs. So it's like, do the, will those people adapt better? Or, you know, the mutability of form in your brain is going to be an interesting thought process to get around. I mean, uh, there are, it's also uh, quite important to, um, I guess, call to mind uh, I don't, I, I look in the mirror and I don't really see myself. So some people, I think, would probably adapt to this more easily if the, the form that they have is right now is not something like, for instance, I I look at photos or I look in the mirror and it feels like I see someone else. <laughs> yeah, same here for, you know, and not just my, my OC, but like for, you know, as I said, the other kinism and stuff like that, way more comfortable in one of those forms rather than don't like looking in the mirror um, because of kind of what you said. And I think for some people, I think they're going to be just like everything else in the world. There'll be some people who adapt to it like, like that. There'd be some people who are resistant, some people who probably can't do it like at all, like they can't get out of that mindset or, or they don't want to, which is, you know, perfectly acceptable too. So it'll be kind of a, if we do get to that point relatively soon or relatively quickly, you know, and, it, will other Kingdom furries adapt better to being able to change like that, or will we kind of be surprised? Yeah. It's kind of exciting when that can happen. I, I think it will definitely be both. Like, some people are going to go through things better, but I mean, yeah, they're definitely going to be surprised. Like, not all people uh, or not all other can experience things like phantom shifts. These would be completely dumbstruck if they just had new limbs and had to learn how to control them. To do and those shifts, if I recall correctly, are still based off their expectations. It's which a grand learning experience, isn't it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it'll it'll definitely either be. I mean, even positive stress is stress. I mean, I just moved to a new place and and started like a bigger studio. I'm I was stressed the max. I was afraid to tear my hair out, but it was a good experience. So when people start changing, even if it's into a form they want, like I deal a lot in transformation stuff and I never like it when it's like, oh, I'm this thing now. Time to go on with my day. Do, 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 do. No, there's going to be a psychological response, whether it's wanted or not. There will be surprise, shock. You know, you have claws and fur and, or fangs or wings or fins or, you know, whatever you decided. That's not a natural thing that happens nowadays. So at least at the very beginning, there's going to be a learning curve no matter what and there will be stress even if it's positive stress uh, it makes me wonder um if the the kind of the stressful learning curve that you're speaking of um is, is going to be something that applies to people who are not having to perhaps factor in freedom of form so much take for example the students who are working with nexus aurora um developing um space stations and habitats for mars over time of course some of those are going to be um, people who travel to Mars um, and help with the actual construction projects and, you know, making um, life multiplanetary. Will it be, uh, you know, the, the same kind of, of um, learning curve for them? Will it be just as stressful in a positive way for them uh, to, to change the way that humanity looks at itself? 
um, from this, you know, pale blue dot to uh, the network of uh, of planets. Eventually, you know, a kind of group of um, civilizations, as it were. Um, or do do we find that um, that there's significant differences in those things, and that, that the furry fandom, you know, and and other kin and theorians may um, may want to uh, make uh, the difference, you know, um, that leap from from one intelligent species, you know, humanity to multiple species, but the, the learning curve would work significantly differently. What do you think? If I may, um, it's not so much a question of how prepared we are for that curve. The curve is always going to exist there. I mean, even just a daily, you know, your daily life, if you have something that differs from the normal, it's going to impact you in some way. And, you know, it's probably going to be more subtle. Like, obviously, if you hear a siren, you're going to be startled because you hear the siren, but then you're like, oh, you know, it's just it's responding to somebody's call, you know. Um, <laughs> nice little bit of back reference there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not meaning to, you know, point out anybody specifically, but, you know, as we've seen on these virtual calls over the past year and a half, you know, two years now, um, we have a lot of background noise that we've just adapted to because we understand that that's part of recording from home. That's part yeah. of being in a space where you can't be isolated. And there's, there's the most critical thing. We've already adapted to something very recently. So don't let anybody tell you you can't adapt. Right. And, you know, it's, it's not so much um, a lack of adaptation you know, staying stagnant, staying conservative, what have you. It's just being able, as it were, to maybe, um, oh, now the words escape me. Ah, I had it and then it lost me. <laughs> I guess one point that um, I often like to say when, when people, when I, for instance, say that, hey, maybe you might be able to control new limbs like tails or even wings just without needing any implants or anything. Uh, people sometimes point out that that would probably not be possible because the brain is just like hardwired to to not really understand that. To those people, I always like to say that the brain can literally adapt to one half of itself completely missing. Yeah. Right. We see that a lot in neurology. Obviously, yes. it's not quite the same after half of it goes missing, but it, it can adapt in a way that ensures that the person um, in some way continues to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you boil it, if you boil adaptability down to, to kind of the, the brass tacks of it all, it, it's really just how someone deals in a, in a new situation. I mean, if you look at going from just uh, like a city environment into the jungle, I wouldn't do it, but, you know, people go there all the time to do, you know, whatever, what have you. And I think space would be kind of that next frontier of, you know, people who want to go out there and experience space, but now they have a whole different set of hazards. You know, I don't have to deal with scorpions or giant snakes or, you know, anything that would be in the jungle. Same thing for, you know, people in space will have to deal with all different, like the, you know, gravity fluctuations probably for artificial gravity or if they have a way of, or if they move it around um, you know ex- decompression, explosive decompression for going out into space and then oops you're dead you know um, 
whatever type of you know power needs, like having to secure that, being isolated far away from people. I mean, that's radiation protection. So it, it's basically it boils down to the same thing as going to the jungle or going to the South Pole or or doing stuff like that. It's you know, does does your will to go up there supersede? the dangers that will be posed. And I think if you fall on the the right side of that equation, you're probably just you're probably gonna be fine as far as death ability is concerned. So then the question comes, um, if if somebody is you know, the kind of child who says, uh, when I grow up I wanna be an astronaut, can that will be taught to them? You can definitely nurture curiosity. Um, we see that a lot with, you know, our fascination with media, with our fascination with, um, you know, all sorts of different things. It's just a question of what, what opportunities are available to us and is the reality that those opportunities, uh, you know, being out of reading and going to crush that. Well, I think I think part of it is the if there's if they're willing to do it. I mean, for for some, it just seems like you know you, you kind of not get faded into a role, but life seems to if you're if you're passionate about something enough, sometimes it seems like you get pushed in that direction. Like you know, I, I love writing, and I never thought I'd do it full time because everyone in from you know age three and up said, "Oh, it's a, it's a fine hobby." But, you know, don't expect to ever make any money off it. Well, you know, joke's on them now. But, you know, that I, w- I was all set to do a, a science path and a science career and, and all that, bi- microbiology and all that. And then things happened and I just drifted back into writing. And that's where I ended up. And I think passion and stalwartness is definitely a, a factor there, too. Not the whole thing, but factor. Um, to say, but, um, to give my opinion, I don't think you can force someone to have a certain passion for something. That's just not going to be possible. But definitely getting people to follow their passions, that is something. And I guess to also kind of circle back, it's not really something that school does, at least not in the vast majority of countries. Uh, schools... To, to avoid getting too political, but uh, schools mostly just are there to make people into obedient workers who just don't question the world around them and do what they're told. Yeah, and even in places where schools are. And I don't that's think that's good for the future. The, the way that schools teach, yeah, it's, it's got um, certain downsides to it because they're, they're trying to measure everything with certain metrics that that kind of make a, a square peg for a round hole, in a sense, with, um, you know, teaching kids to, to basically learn how to be good at tests. Even in places where the schools are trying to nurture some kind of passion for, uh, you know, engineering, for example, they um, are not always equal about how they do it. So that's one of the reasons why organisations like RoboGals exist. They try to even out that... Um, that disparity. Make sure that um, the uh, those who are traditionally excluded from a particular subject matter, like um, engineering, are given a chance to learn it. I not only learn it, but, but to build a passion. I would argue that your analogy of the square peg and the round hole is a bit different. Is a bit. Uh... 
Uh, slice a bit wrong. I would correct it a little. Instead, you have like the square, the holes, which are kind of, I guess, society's r roles for people. And then you have the pegs, and these are like the students. And basically, school just takes all of those pegs and sands them down so that they fit in the holes. And in doing so, yeah. they partially destroy them. Yeah, I mean, that that's the general nature of things, because as uh, we allude, were talking about much, much earlier, you know, it's, it's that balance between what corporate needs are, what economy needs are, and what the individual needs are. Because even if you just boil it down to what does a community need, there are going to be circumstances wherein someone is passionate about one certain topic or one certain field of study, but circumstances are such that they have to, you know, make or, you know, meet in the middle or compromise so that they're filling a role that is much more necessary for communal survival. Yeah. Yeah, but what I am meaning to say is that school does that with everyone when it's not nearly necessary with that many people. And then you just get people who just would rather do other things and i think the internet is really amazing in that it has given these people the ability to do that so you're saying you finish it with offices full of daydreamers and factories full of um, resentful workers who would rather be doing something else probably yeah um well, yeah that, that's the situation it's helping to solve that you know we, we can develop robots we can develop ai uh, and of course, then you get those people who like these jobs in the factories and offices, or who do not see any easy way for them to learn anything else, who uh, will then, you know, rail against the development of robots and AIs. Right. But, I mean, it's a situation that's been with us since the Industrial Revolution, which was really, in recent memory, the biggest push towards automation that we have seen in, you know, centuries of human society. And now we have the new information age revolution or whatever we want to call these revolutions. It's just we're increasingly having to balance between the will of the individual and the needs of society. And to be clear, um, it, this is all tied to the push for democracy, the push for representation. You wouldn't be having these discussions in a medieval society where you have the nobility and the commoners and the serfs. Of course. But do you think that society um, is ready to simultaneously have the um, space-faring revolution and the evolution revolution that is freedom of form. Inextricably linked because we have no other choice. I mean, as we were talking about in our conversation, um, at a, obviously we're going to need to find a happy medium between um, what we can do to change the world we live on to suit our needs but also ourselves to be better adapted for the environments we expose them to. Yeah, that's right. So that includes how we learn, I guess. We've got to learn to learn better. Right, and understanding you know, what knowledge is actually important to have, um, what we actually cut out, what we maintain. You know, it's, it's always going to be a can of worms. It's not quite so easy to go back to school when even a Zoom call with your tutor has a 20-minute lag. Right. <laughs> So uh, the, I guess we uh, 
put that in a nutshell. And now I'd just like you to tell us, Tyler, uh, about the Beyond Human podcast, please. Yeah, the Humanity and Beyond podcast, it's intent, um, at least as far as what I can get from the producers is to try to take what's happening with technology now and you know they focus on spacefaring they focus on longevity um, I had that recent conversation with um, Zoltan on transhumanism and then our conversation that went so many different ways <laughs> Zoltan is talking about wasn't it? right um, and we were talking about transhumanism, politics, religion, how they all mix. But yeah, it's just basically taking these very new emerging technologies, which have all sorts of hype around them and trying to um, have very uh, cordial conversations to try to bring it down to earth a little bit more, bring the realities of them, bring the social issues of them back to the public eye in a way that is more approachable. Yeah, although I would argue that in this conversation we're perhaps not just bringing it down to Earth, but we're also taking it out into space. Right. <laughs> but for all intents and purposes, you know, the bulk of humanity is still Earthbound at present. Um, although, you know, we, we have just had um, the four space tourists in uh, Inspiration4 uh, headed out to just beyond the Hubble space telescope's orbit, um, <clears throat> which is apparently the furthest out that basically anybody's been since the uh, space shuttle went up there to service space telescope. And you know, there's going to be more and more of that as time progresses. Um, it's just going to be a balancing act between how we fund that research, how we allocate the resources for it, and you know, all that sort of... And how we make sure that we don't drop the ball with um, teaching people how to do all this. Right. Obviously. So that's um, that's your homework, everybody. Make sure you learn more about how to learn more. So I think it's time to say class dismissed. I've been and you've been Andre Kerr. Yay, it's late. Tyler. Hi, thank you. <laughs> I keep seeing TL on the screen. I'm thinking, what's the L stand for again? Oh, that's my middle initial. Uh, and of course, Seraphin Sabertooth. Yay! <laughs> Thank you very much for supporting the stream there. Uh, did we get any, um, like, anybody showing us is listening live on Twitch? Uh, it's like five people play screen. It's my usual crowd, but they, they stick around to listen. So. That's nice of them. Well, hi there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're really appreciative of any donations that we can get in the Freedom of Form Foundation to further not only these conversations, uh, but our research as well to uh, develop the technologies um, in, in the way that is most beneficial to, uh, you know, the whole kind of combination, really, of, of being able to transform ourselves into whatever we want to be and the, the kind of technological learnings and leaps that, that humanity needs to make. Corvus says hi. Oh, who says hi? And they enjoyed the discussion. Corvus. Corvus. Thank you very much, Corvus. Um, hope you have yourself a lovely time. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll we'll try to have these podcasts a little more frequently. Um, I admit it's not been that easy for me to organise them, but now we've got Seraph in here, so maybe things will happen. <laughs> no, no pressure. Yeah, soon, no pressure. Soon as I'm not, no longer actually locked out of the Freedom of Twitch, we can have it over there. <laughs> Indeed, we can. 
Um, you just need to keep prodding our uh, back office people and we'll, we'll make it happen. Uh, yes. Tyler, uh, you're welcome to um, come around to um, future episodes as well um, and take, take part again and again. You know, we're all a happy family here. <laughs> Oh yeah, use me as you guys see fit. I'm more than happy to provide whatever I can do to help out because, you know, as I said, I have my fingers in so many different pies, it's not even funny. <laughs> it sounds like a food hygiene standards failure. <laughs> uh, well, you, you could say that, but at the same time, you know, it does expand my uh, knowledge a lot and expands my take on things a lot better so that I'm able to maybe bring to light some angles that people are often not prone to uh, approach in. And combine some interesting mixtures of flavors of pie. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I baked you a pie. Mm, what kind of pie? Pie flavor. <laughs> oh, lordy. My favorite gifts. I mean, um, someone with synesthesia might literally have a pie flavored pie. <laughs> it's so messy. Yeah, I suppose if, if they're thinking of the number pi, um, what does a synesthetic person see or taste? So that's the random thought for the week, <laughs> or month, or however long we are. Um, yeah, I'm just like letting us trail off into rambling territory here. You know, at some point the end credits music will play, and there'll be this this sort of comical cut off of uh, our conversation, and we won't even know about it until the editing's done. Right, right. <laughs> There'll probably be a few of those moments in, in the middle of the podcast as well where I couldn't hear properly, where we'll insert the test card and the sort of um, technical difficulties music. <laughs> well, that's just how it goes, right? Yep. You know, it's, it's just a little cutesy tune that we use. And, um, you know, the, the intro and outro music, though, is, is meant to be very calming, very relaxing. Get people in a nice frame of mind, you know, to listen. Um, and so far, I have not heard any complaints about it, but if anybody really detests it, please tell me. Um, I, I do try to let it play for, for quite a, a long time before we actually start talking, and likewise afterwards, because I think that helps people to, you know, just, just have a moment to breathe before we get into the real conversation. And, of course, before they get back to their day to day lives afterwards. Uh, yeah, just, just a little bit of the behind-the-scenes rationale. Well, whatever works, right? If it ain't fix, or if it ain't broke, we'll fix it. <laughs> oh, I need to fix it. Break it. <laughs> it's That's almost one o'clock in the afternoon for me here. I mean, I mean, if it ain't fix, break it. That sounds like a kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Right didn't NASA fix a rover by telling it to hit itself with its own shovel? <laughs> right. <laughs> because in maintenance, it even works for robots. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I, I, that kind of works. It's very much a mech guy that way to do things, but yeah, if it ain't fixed, break it until it is. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, I definitely I mean, need to get some don't more forget, power, some people, for some people, their freedom of form is to become a robot 
or to upload their mind into a computer. Uh, oh, yeah. So, you know, for some people, literally when mind uploading becomes a thing, their freedom of thought could make them the pioneers and the first um, sentient being of some description to visit any given place. Mm-hmm. Oh, if you did, I would find uh, Expelled from Paradise. That might be a fun one for all of you to look at. Because the premise is you're basically going from a virtual only existence back into a biological form. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard of a, a similar story before, but it was a long time ago when I was at school. And it was about a society of robots um, and they were sort of trying to uh, trans- transform themselves into um, biology because they they realised that biology was superior to um, mm. the limitations on the physics of the technology they were built from. Um, so it was kind of an interesting kind of re- reverse take on, on the mind-uploading philosophies. Right, because and I'll be all... Sorry, I'm not hearing you properly. Um, no, I, I was just saying that that's something that I've written about. It's just the form that intelligence takes isn't a specific black and white about it. It is going to be whatever is most convenient and whatever is most adaptable at the moment. You know. Okay, now, now we've had a couple of false endings. Shall we have the real ending? <laughs> <laughs> Be my guess. I, I'm taking up your guys' time at this point. I mean, okay. I, I was taking up your time, to be honest. We're, we're all just kind of... Being... Oh, no, I'm... <laughs> I'm open for another couple hours before I have a meeting for a uh, chapter I'm developing with my thesis advisor and a colleague at a uh, local university. Fair play. Um, some of us um, you know, may, may need to carry out um, natural bodily functions. So, with that in mind, um, thanks ever so much for coming along. Take care and uh, all the best.